five days before Christmas, 1943, and an American bomber pilot named Charlie Brown glanced out of his cockpit window and froze. Glanced again, thinking that maybe he saw a mirage, but he didn't. His co-pilot saw it, too. What they saw, what they were looking at, was a gray German Messerschmitt fighter flying just three feet off their wingtip. He had closed in for the kill. And the bomber was helpless because half of the crew was wounded. The tail gunner was dead. So in what they thought was just the last few minutes of their life, the the pilots glanced back at the fighter pilot. But something unexpected happened. Instead of pulling his trigger, the pilot waved, nodded his head, and peeled away, returning to Germany. The fighter pilot, Second Lieutenant Franz Stiegler, originally took off intending to shoot this bomber down. As he climbed up behind it, he noticed that the tail gunner was slumped over in a bloody frozen mess over his gun. The men were huddled inside, tending to the wounds of the crew. So he nudged his plane alongside the bomber's wings and followed it as far as he could out into the North Sea. And when he had gone as far as he could, he locked eyes with that bomber pilot, and he waved. With a nod of his head, he showed unexpected mercy to these men who were completely without hope. Forty-five years later, these men were reunited. After an extensive search, almost giving up, Brown and Stiegler came back together, and they became like brothers. Stiegler, who now lived in Florida would visit Brown, Brown would visit Stiegler, they exchanged gifts, they became fishing buddies, and they died within months of each other in 2008. When interviewed, Brown shared how the unexpected mercy that Stiegler showed him changed his life. It made him a generous man, a compassionate man. So Stiegler had saved his life in more ways than one. All of us live according to certain expectations for how things work. Rules of engagement, the patterns for love, war, everything in between. But when those rules and patterns are interrupted by unexpected mercy, it staggers us. It's unsettling, and it can be life-changing. And we see that in stories like this one of Brown and Stiegler. We see it when people encounter the unexpected mercy of Jesus. Today we're going to be looking at Jesus' third sign, as recorded in John's biography of Jesus. It's a miraculous healing, but as a sign, it points to something else. Here, it points to Jesus' unexpected mercy. And it gives us eyes to see the, the color and depth of who Jesus really is and his mission to make all things new. So we're going to read about this in John chapter 5. If you have a physical Bible or or one on your phone, you might want to flip there and follow along. Uh, It's going to be on the screens as well. So it begins this way. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. There is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid, for 38 years. Jesus is nearing Jerusalem. He's still outside the gates and the city walls. 
and he decides to enter into one of these Roman baths. So much like that model there, archaeological digs have uncovered these pools. There's actually two of them. One which is undoubtedly this, this pool referred to in John 5 as Bethesda. And this particular pool is dedicated to the Roman god Fortuna. Fortuna was this Roman god who controlled the ever-turning Wheel of Fortune. Not Pat Sajak's Wheel of Fortune. This is the, the cycle, un- endless cycle of prosperity and calamity that the Romans linked to the activity of the gods. So if this pool was dedicated to Fortuna, it makes sense that people with disabilities would gather around, uh, hoping that their wheel of fortune would land on something good, that their fate would change. But going back to the passage for a second, do you notice anything missing here? When we read this before? You detailed people. Verse 4, who said that? Yeah, well done. There's no verse 4. Let me explain that real quick. Uh, The English Bible that we have access to today is the result of translations and comparisons of hundreds of early manuscripts that were circulating in the the ancient world based on the original text. There are copies of that text that were circulating. And most of of the time, those manuscripts would align perfectly. So we have no doubt what the original text was. Other times, there are discrepancies. So in this case, some manuscripts, but not the oldest ones, include a verse four in here, and it it reads like this. These people who gathered around the pool waited for the moving of the waters. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. Now, most scholars agree this wasn't in the original, It was a gloss, though, to help us understand a common belief at the time. And it was this belief that every time the water in this pool bubbled, that was a sign that Fortuna or an angel of some kind was releasing healing powers into the water. And that the first person to get in after it it bubbled or stirred would be healed. Now, most likely these were spring-fed pools, so the bubbling uh, was happening on a predictable time scale. People knew when to gather, but they linked that bubbling to the activity of the gods. So that's the background and the context important to understand. One of the people who gathered then was this man who had been disabled for 38 years, most likely paralyzed, unable to walk, probably since birth. He's lying there waiting for these waters to bubble, to stir, when Jesus approaches him. I just need to pause there for a second, because... Jesus stopped and went into this Roman bath. He didn't continue on to the city. Probably had a lot of things to do, a lot of important people to see, but he stopped here in this place, this place crammed full of people at the bottom of the social ladder, this place that smelled, this place that was full of despair. He stopped, and he had compassion, and he entered into conversations with people. I probably just would have walked right on by, making some excuse about not being late for a dinner reservation or something. I mean, but this is who Jesus is. He stops. He's filled with compassion. And he talks with this one man long enough to learn about his condition, long enough to know he's been suffering a very long time. And he asks him this question, recorded in verse 6. Do you want to get well? That seems like a dumb question. One of those dumb rhetorical questions that people ask, but Jesus has a reason for it because it reveals an underlying despair and jadedness that this man has. 
He doesn't say yes. He reacts almost as if he's just totally given up the possibility that he's going to get well because he says in verse 7, Sir, I have no one to help me get into the pool when the water stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. In other words, who cares if I want to get well? I can't get into the pool. Every time I try, someone gets in front of me. I mean, look around you. Who's here that's going to help me get into the pool? I'm totally on my own. Now, totally understandable that over time, this guy's imagination has, has been wilted. He recognized that there's only one way that he could be healed. It's getting into this pool on time. And he wasn't able to make that happen, and so this is impossible to him. And completely understandable how he got to this place, but yet you read that, I I look at that, and I see a a hopeless, self-defeating logic there that's hugely convicting to me. Uh, Especially if you broaden this out. Use this as a paradigm and broaden it out to apply to things beyond physical healing. Uh, Here's the logic that I see. This is the way that healing or transformation has to happen. This way is blocked. Therefore, healing is impossible. What's wrong is that first premise, that healing has to happen this way. This is the way transformation needs to happen. Uh, But sometimes we're so stuck in that Mindset, so uh, in a situation that we can't see other possibilities, other options. Uh, I mean, think about these examples. I can only experience relational healing if we agree. We're only going deeper into disagreement, therefore, relational healing is impossible. I will only experience joy again if he changes. There's no indication he's going to change. Therefore, either I'm never going to experience joy again or I'm just going to throw in the towel. I will only experience sexual wholeness if I get married. I continue to have no prospects. Therefore, I will never experience sexual wholeness. I can only experience emotional health if X, Y, or Z never happens again. I can never know that. Therefore, emotional health is beyond me. These are really tough scenarios. This situation that the man is incredibly difficult. But I think you can see in these different scenarios that in different ways they're limiting God's ability to surprise us. Surprise us with his unexpected mercy. I mean, what if God was able to move you toward relational wholeness towards spiritual wholeness, intellectual, sexual, emotional, holistic wholeness in ways that you don't even expect right now? Would you be willing for God to move you that way if it's different than you expect? The man by the pool never expected Jesus to respond in the way that he's going to respond. In the midst of his despair, thinking this is the only way, Jesus says to him, get up. Pick up your mat and walk. Now, once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and he walked. Completely unexpected mercy. And the text doesn't give us any details of how this guy's responding. 
Seems like he's completely dazed because later we learn he didn't even get Jesus' name. He just does what Jesus says. And we do know, however, how the religious leaders reacted to this. They didn't like it one bit. And we learn why in verses 9 and 10. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath day. So the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. Over time, Jewish tradition had developed hundreds of rules around what is permissible and what is not permissible on the Sabbath day, this day of rest for the Jews. And it seems to us that this response is, is brutally cold-hearted, right? But understand what's going on. These guys are, are responding out of extreme passion for upholding all of the rules uh, for how rest and transformation should happen. So this is where they're coming from. And what strikes me is this is exactly the same assumption as a disabled man. Healing and transformation happen this way. According to these rules and these conditions. Because the disabled man believed healing has to happen by me getting into the pool first. Right? These guys are saying healing can't happen on the Sabbath, of course, because that's a form of work. No, this is the way it needs to work. This is the way transformation has to happen. No exceptions. So it's the same assumption. And it's rooted in a stunted, um, stubborn imagination. And it's interesting because it leads to two different mindsets, two different life postures that these people take. It leads the disabled man to despair, hopelessness. And it leads the religious leaders to be judgmental. I would argue that wherever you fall on the spectrum of belief, And whatever your commitment to Jesus, you are prone to one or the other of these postures. Either you are prone to despair because you think that healing or transformation must not be able to happen according to however you think things work. Or you are prone to judge because healing, whether your own or someone else's, has to happen according to whatever condition you think rules. So what's the biggest struggle for you? What's the biggest struggle? Are you someone who's prone to give up? Or are you someone who's prone to judge? Are, are you irreligious and prone to despair? Or are you religious and prone to be judgmental? Because here's the deal. Wherever you are, Jesus' mercy is wild and unexpected and real for all of us. Because Jesus' mercy shows that our expectations, blown out of the water. Whatever idea we have about conditions by which we normally judge people, irrelevant. Jesus' mercy isn't limited in those ways. It's not limited to kinds of people, rules, conditions, expectations. He shows mercy to whomever he pleases, Whenever he pleases, however he pleases, usually the people we wouldn't expect. And he only asks that they recognize their need, have a desire for mercy, however or whenever it may come. So, I mean, imagine Jesus asking you that question. Do you want to get well? It's a deep question. Because if so, he's saying, give up your control. 
Give up your expectations for how exactly that's going to happen. Maybe it's not going to be the way that you expect. But I am ready to show you mercy. And when you encounter it, when you encounter that kind of unexpected mercy, or see someone else encounter such unexpected mercy, you can either respond dazed with gratitude, as I think the disabled man is, or you can respond unfazed, full of objections. It's the difference between, wow, really? And that's not the way it's supposed to happen. Aren't they supposed to believe first or do these right things first? Or, I mean, why, why did they get healed and not me? Days with gratitude, unfazed. Only if you respond in the first way, days with gratitude, will you actually become the kind of person who is capable of showing mercy to other people, showing compassion, as Jesus did. And look at the religious leaders, right? They're unfazed by what's happened. They're, they're full of objections. So they're not even capable of celebrating with the guy who's just been healed because they've got to filter it through their grid of rules. So they're not able to show him mercy. All, all they can do is judge. Well, after railing on him for picking up his mat on the Sabbath day, he tries to give an honest answer even though he doesn't know what's going on. And, and they just keep drilling him. So we see in verses 11 to 13, he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was. For Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. So the religious leaders are interrogating him out of their default of judgment. But he's just dazed. He doesn't, he doesn't know what just happened. And he wants them to experience that with him, but they're not willing. Uh, and then later on, Jesus pursues him. He catches up to him, identifies himself, explains a little bit what happened. You see that in verses 14 and 15. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you're well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. The man went away, told the Jewish leaders, It was Jesus who made me well. Now, some people take verse 14 to claim that suffering is always linked to some kind of sin in your life. That is not the case. That is not what Jesus is saying. He's very clear elsewhere. In John 9, just a few chapters later, um, his disciples come to him and they ask about this blind man. Who sinned, the blind man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus says, neither. Neither he sinned nor his parents sinned. That's not how it works. And it's possible that Sometimes sin and suffering are linked, but not all the times, and we definitely don't ever get the inside scoop on why or when. So that's not a question we can ask. Here's the point I think Jesus is making in verse 14. He's saying, you've been healed. Now your life should be different. Don't go back to your old ways of living. Live within this mercy now. Now that you've experienced God, God's unexpected mercy, is it possible for you to live for yourself anymore? Because if that's possible, then maybe, maybe you haven't authentically encountered my mercy and it hasn't really changed you. And yeah, in, in which case your future is going to be bleak. But if your heart's changed, if you allowed yourself to be dazzled and, and dazed by, by God's unexpected mercy, then you will be the kind of person that shows mercy to other people, has compassion on people. 
in creative ways, just like Jesus does. But it all starts with being dazzled, dazed by what God has done for you, the kind of mercy that he's shown. That reminds me of a beautiful line in Graham Greene's 1938 novel, Bright and Rock. There's one point in the middle of the novel that an old man is talking to a girl. And he's trying to explain how, even at the end of his life, he can have hope for someone who seems beyond hope. He's trying to explain this to, to like an eight-year-old. He says, you can't conceive my child, nor can I or anyone else, the appalling strangeness of the mercy of God. And it's strangely appealing. And when it comes to relating with God, we are all like the bomber pilot. We can't pilot our lives in a way that pleases God. And yet God, in Jesus, has locked his eyes to yours. And he said, I love you. Receive my mercy. Receive my mercy, and I will be all that you need. Please pray with me. God, show us today, right now, where we're prone to despair or where we're, we're prone to judge. And surprise us with your mercy. Turn our expectations upside down. Surprise us by your grace. Move in in ways that we wouldn't expect. And ask that you'd open our hearts to receive your mercy, however it comes. Um, don't let us be hardened. Help us to, to bask in, in the glory of it, to be dazed by it, even if we don't understand it. Keep us from explaining it away. And um, in the whole process, God, I ask that you uh, would change our hearts so that we become people who show unexpected mercy in creative ways to people who really need to experience it, to know your love and to know your compassion. So, Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Amen. So we have a question. What do you want? What do you want? What do you want? And I don't think there's a more dangerous question or a more uh, potent question than that. And I dare you to answer it in a way that scares you. Um, I think that that was the challenge that at least that I heard. Maybe you're not where I'm at and you don't have even words for that. Like you're in a place where you don't really know what you want. Maybe you think you know what you want and you don't know how to get there. Whatever. We would love to have the opportunity to pray with you about that. We're a community that takes the what do we want to God and we let him you know, ask us more tough questions and sort that out. You can get that done in one of three ways. You can drop your prayer request on a piece of paper and either one there's some yellow boxes on both these doors as you go out here. You can put it there. I really encourage you as your week goes along and as things come along, like in a moment, to just email us at prayer at warehouse242.org and tell us what you want because it's just, it should just be like breathing to just put out there what you want and let other people join with you in that prayer. And if there's something you would like to process or talk about or just sit quietly with somebody, if you go over around this mural on my right after the service, there'll be some folks that love to pray and they'll help you any way they can. So. 
I love the book of Romans. I just have to warn you now that I might do a teaching series on Romans that lasts the whole year at some point. Just saying. Um, but I love the book of Romans because the first 11 chapters are about God's mercy. Just talked about it in different ways, but 11 chapters about how God has shown his mercy to us. And then the last three are about, okay, then how then should you live? So why don't you stand with me? I'm going to send us out with a benediction that's, therefore, how then should we live? And it's from Romans 12, verse 1. Receive this benediction. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Go in grace.